Acts chapter 18, and we're reading from verse 1. This is God's word. This is the account of how Paul first arrived in Corinth and what he was doing and how God blessed him. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus the synagogue ruler and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack or harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. Teaching them the word of God. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his own word. Now we're going to praise God again using the words of Psalm number 62. Psalm 62, we continue our worship as we bring our tithes and offerings. Uh, some lovely verses in this uh, book. It's not one that I have preached on before and I don't think I've ever heard anyone else preaching on it other than a few texts. So I'm going to share with you some of my study uh, from this passage and if I'm ever invited back, I might even carry on and do some other studies in this book. I know that, Harry, your minister, has taken you through 1 Corinthians. So it's all fresh in your mind. You know what all, all about 1 Corinthians is. But we're looking at chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians this morning. Let's hear God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. 
And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Amen. May God add his blessing to this, the further reading from his own word. Before we look at this passage, let's turn again in our Psalter to uh, number four. Corinth was a city with a long and rich heritage. It was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans and it lay uninhabited for around about a hundred years. It was then rebuilt by Julius Caesar in BC 44 and a hundred years later roughly Paul the Apostle visited it. It was the third most important city in the Roman Empire at that time, next to Rome and Alexandria. And by the time Paul was there, there were around about 80,000 inhabitants. Because of his position, and maybe we can see it here on the screen, so we get an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, you'll probably know this anyway. This is Corinth here. Uh, and this is up above. Uh, this whole area is the area of the peninsula. Uh, there's a seaport here, so it was a very important uh, traffic going through this way here, and also there was a land bridge here to go north. So that's the kind of place that Corinth became, it was, and it became a very important place. The population uh, consisted of Jews and Gentiles, there were slaves and there were free men, there were rich and the poor. It, because of a position, attracted a lot of sea trade and indeed it was the crossing over point from north to south. It became a magnet for immigrants who were seeking a better life for themselves. People like ex-soldiers made their home in Corinth. People who wanted to get on in life made their home in Corinth. People who wanted to become rich made their home in Corinth. Corinth was fast becoming a boom town. And there were all the facilities in Corinth for an active life. There was a stadium with, which was built to hold 18,000 people. There was a concert hall that held 3,000 people. The Isthmian Games were reinstituted, and thus sports people from all across the Roman world, they congregated in Corinth. Corinth was, in those days, a modern city. And yet, when all of these things that I've said to you, I could be describing Belfast or any other city in the UK, a modern city. They all, uh, as 
extensive tourism, a lot of sport, as much sex as you want, and religious diversity. That was Corinth. And isn't that Belfast also? Plenty of entertainment, full of people, diversity of religion, and much immorality. And as we notice in a moment, it was into such a situation like that that the people of Corinth were called to live out their Christian experience. They were called to be salt and light in that community. It wasn't a utopia. There were all the problems associated with people living without God. But God called them to live in that situation. So with us, God has called us to live in Carrickfergus, outside Belfast, with all the problems. We haven't got a utopia. There are difficulties. There will be pressures, as we'll notice in a moment. But just as God called the people in Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago, so he's called us to live for Jesus and to be light and salt in our community. But you notice, secondly, the church around the year A.D. 50, Paul arrived in Corinth, and we read it from Acts chapter 18. He spent 18 months there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as a result, there were many people who were converted, and a church was formed. Paul continued on his missionary journey, and he heard of some of the problems that, were, that had arisen in Corinth. He, he, he then addressed those problems and we have it written for us in the book what we call 1 Corinthians. Most of the congregation responded to the letter and there was godly sorrow unto repentance from most. And so Paul was filled with joy. Chapter 7 and verse 4 tells us that. He then made another visit to Corinth. It's known as the painful visit. Painful because some of the people no longer accepted Paul as an authoritative figure. They questioned his position. They said that he was unimpressive in his oratory. They complained about the lack of integrity. They questioned, some of them even questioned his theology. Probably a group of Judaizers who wanted to uphold the old covenant. And so it's against that background that he writes to Corinthians. And in the opening verse, I want you to notice two things. Firstly, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That word apostle means a sent one. Someone who has been commissioned. And Paul was commissioned by Jesus on the Damascus road to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul didn't just decide that it was going to be his role to go to the Gentiles. God commissioned him. God sent him. And therefore he went with authority and the words that he proclaimed were authoritative. They were the apostolic message. Here, right at the start of the second letter, he's underlining to these people, Paul, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ, and therefore you should submit to what I'm saying. 
He's making an indirect attack upon others who claimed to be apostles but were false. And he's saying to them, I'm the one that God has called. I'm the one that God has sent. And I have the message on my lips from God. Notice incidentally, Timothy is just our brother. He's not an apostle. He's just a brother. But Paul is one of the twelve apostles. What he's saying to these people right at the start is, listen to what I'm saying. Because my message is from God. And isn't that the truth for us as well? The apostolic message is found in 2 Corinthians, but it's also found throughout the New Testament. And the message of God is in this book. And we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to believe this and follow the directions that are in this book. There are many people today who refuse to accept the Bible. It used to be the case that the secret of England's greatness was the open Bible, but that's no longer the case. <coughs> Indeed, uh, there are even professing Christians who do not accept that the Bible is the final authority in things of matter of faith and practice. They elevate experience. They talk about the gift of knowledge or the gift of tongues, and these things replace the word of God. Surely that's wrong. Isn't this the final word that God has sent us? Hebrews 1 and verse 1. In the past God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has finally spoken to us in Christ. And it's up to us to accept the authority of the word. Bow to it. Acknowledge that it's God's word to us. This is God's map book to guide us in all of our living. And it's not up to us to pick and choose which pieces to believe and which pieces to leave to, to, to reject. Paul's the authoritative apostle. He's saying to the people, believe what I'm saying. Then the second thing in verse 1 is the description of the Christian. Notice it says he's underlying, underlining a high calling of the Christian to the church of God in Corinth together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Two terms there. Draw your attention to first is the word church. This was an everyday term that was used for a gathering of people. If you want to look up Acts chapter 19 and verse 39 and verse 41, you will find there that the word was used of a, a legal gathering, a, a parliament or a court. Everyday use, the word ecclesia, assembly of people. But here it's the church of God. The people that gather that belong to God. Going back in the Old Testament, the, the word was used in Judges chapter 20, verse 2, of a large gathering of the tribes. The tribes of Israel gathered together, and Moses, or one of the prophets, read the word to the gathered people. 
And now in Corinth, the people were the people of God and they were gathering together to hear the word of God and to hear what God was wanting them to say. This was a people who were called out by God to be his people. And they're also referred to as saints. This is quite amazing, isn't it? You, have, you did your study in 1 Corinthians and you will remember perhaps that in this group there were those who were involved in factions. Some were Peter's men and some were Paul's men and so on. These were people who had tolerated incest amongst themselves. There were ones who took each other to court. There was all kinds of sexual problems. They abused the Lord's table. There was accesses in public worship. Some of them doubted the resurrection. And now some of them were treating Paul like dirt and refusing to listen or acknowledge his authority. And yet, notice, he calls them saints. How can a group of people like this be called saints? Isn't it quite amazing? The word saints is obviously not referring to their behavior because their behavior was less than Christian. The word saints is not referring to their morality. It's not what people outside talk about people being holy Joes, a a cut above the rest in terms of piety or holiness. No, no, that's not what the word saints mean. The word saints originally is someone who's set apart for a relationship in Jesus Christ. The word saint is someone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are brought into a living relationship with Jesus. It's nothing to do with people's morality or goodness or lack of it. It's to do with their position, their calling. Calling to be the Lord's people. Calling to be saints. Of course, when the Spirit of God lives within, it should lead to a holiness of life. But in the first instance, a saint is not someone who's perfect. A saint is one who's in a relationship with Jesus. Doesn't that point to the grace of God? Here's a group of people meeting in Corinth. They're sinful people. But Paul addresses them as saints. He addresses them as the church, the gathered people who belong to God, who are to gather to hear the word of God. Not true of us. We are all sinful people. We've sinned in word and thought and deed. From the sole of our head to the bottom of our feet, says Jeremiah, there's nothing but sores, trouble. And we talk about the depravity of the heart. Isn't that us all? And yet, in God's sovereign grace, He has called us into a living relationship with Jesus Christ and therefore he calls us saints. We're the gathered people of God. Sinful people coming together in order to hear the word of God. Question is, will we submit to the word of God in our lives 
and demonstrate that we do indeed belong to the Lord. The city, Corinth, a modern city with all the problems. The second thing there was the the church called people saints. Notice thirdly then, verses 3 to 7, the comfort. Just listen as I read verses 3 to 7. Do you see what this these verses are saying? And count the number of times, if you will, the word comfort occurs. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces a new patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. How many times is the word comfort there? Ten. Well done. Ten times. So obviously this little passage is about comfort, isn't it? I want you to notice three interlocking ideas here around these verses. First of all, the people of God are marked with trouble and suffering. Look at verse 4. It says, who comforts us in all of our troubles. Look at verse 6. It talks about if we are distressed. The word distressed is the same word as verse 4. This word troubles, the main idea here is of pressure of circumstances. Pressure from outside antagonism of persons towards us and if we are faithful to Jesus Christ in our calling then we will have people who will oppose us and they'll pressurize us and they'll try to get us to conform to the world isn't that right people do not like us being different and the word trouble suggests that the pressure will come upon us to conform to the world's standards then look at verse 5 and there's, trouble, there's suffering as well. This is indicated that we will suffer as Christians. Jesus promised that to be the case. We're told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And if we do that, we will suffer persecution. We will be laughed at. We'll be scorned. We'll be mocked. And so the life of the Christian is going to be marked by pressure from the outside world it's going to be part and parcel of our 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 lifestyle jesus promised in the world john chapter 16 and verse 33 in the world you will have trouble 1 peter 4 verse 12 says dear friends do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you Suffering is going to be part and parcel of the Christian life. No health and wealth gospel here. Trouble, persecution, suffering. That's what's promised us. And I've no doubt that's what all of us have experienced if we have been faithful to Jesus Christ in our calling. 
world will not like us being different. So the Christian, you're going to have trouble. But the second interlocking idea is God gives us comfort in all situations. Look at verse 4. It says that he will, uh, uh, who comforts us in all of our troubles. The idea here is of standing beside a person to encourage him or her when they're undergoing severe trials. God is saying he's going to draw alongside us in all of our troubles. Whenever we're under pressure from the world, God will draw alongside to comfort us. He's described there in verse 4 as the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. When I thought about that, I thought of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for and she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And Isaiah 66 says, verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. And the background to Isaiah is that the people were being disciplined because of sin, but now they're receiving comfort from the Lord. God will come alongside as a mother. And comfort us. I'm sure you can remember times when you were a child and you were crying, you were hurting. And who's the first person you run to? Mommy. And mom's the one who will draw alongside and give us a hug and help us when we're distressed, when we're hurting. And this is what Paul is saying here, that God, he'll draw alongside us and console us, as a mom would console us when we're distressed and hurting. But there's another thing here. That word comfort also is the same word from which we get the word for the Holy Spirit. Remember the old authorised version, some of you maybe still use it, or... Maybe you have used it in the past. In John chapter 16 it says, when he, the Holy Spirit, and it refers to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And the comforter is one who draws alongside the NIV, translates the word as counselor because it's more than comforter. <clears throat> yes, the Holy Spirit consoles us when we're down and when we're hurting. But more than that, the Holy Spirit draws alongside to strengthen us. I love what Donald Barnhouse says. He says the Holy Spirit is given as a ramrod down your backbone to make you stand for the truth. A ramrod down your backbone to make you stand for the truth. He gives you strength to withstand the pressures of the world. And look at verse 5. It's all through Christ. And so we've the Trinity involved, the triune God's involved here. When we're under great pressures, when the pressures from the world come to us, when troubles from the world come to us, as they will, 
It is then that God comes like a mother and consoles us. And he comes to us like the Holy Spirit to, to strengthen us, to stand, even when the pressures are pushing against us. Friends, this is a great word of encouragement, isn't it? Truth is that we as Christians do suffer. There are pressures. And, and we can't deny that in our experience or in the scripture. But here's the thing. When we are suffering, when we're being pressurized, it's then that God draws alongside to comfort us and to strengthen us. He is your constant friend and companion. He will help you in your suffering. And so we can trust him whatever our circumstances. He will draw near to be beside us and help us. But notice the third interlocking idea. The purpose. It's to comfort others. Look at verse 4 again. <clears throat> Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. In other words, circumstances come to us. God comforts us in order to fit us for his service. Paul is saying that he has been under pressure from all kinds of external situations. But in all of those circumstances, he was consoled by God and strengthened to live for Christ. And this blessing that he has received, he's now going to pass that blessing on to others who are going through the same problem. Blessings received are to be blessings shared. And even though these Corinthians had manifested much unchristian behaviour, he was still confident that they were the Lord's people and he wants them to share in the comfort that he himself has received. He still has hope for them. Yes, they were sharing in the suffering because of Christ. So they will share in the consolation and the strengthening. Of the Holy Spirit. This is where the church comes in. We are a people who are to help each other. Ideally that is. Sometimes we are the worst people. In terms of tearing others down. But we're together. We're sinful people. Gathering as God's people. We're gathering together. Because we have received this call. To be the child, children of God. And we're all hurting from time to time. We're all going through pressures and sufferings. And when God comes to you and helps you, then you're equipped to help others. I wonder, do you know of other people who are hurting at this time? Go alongside them and do the God-like work of consoling. In Romans chapter 12, there's a list of some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and one of them is the gift of encouraging. Remember Barnabas, he was the chief encourager. You're gifted like that. Use your gift to encourage others who perhaps are hurting at this particular time. Use your gift to build up the people of God. Who are under great pressure. 
Final thing this morning is the challenges, verses 8 to 11. <clears throat> Paul has now given a commentary of his recent experience he had in the province of, uh, of Asia. He refers to it in verse uh, uh, 4, sorry, verse, verse 8, as hardship. It's the same word as verse 4 that's translated as troubles. Look at what he says about his hardship or his troubles. He says, we were under great pressure. Here the picture is of a, a ship who's weighed down with too much cargo. Or the picture of a, a, <clears throat> a pack animal which is on its knees and the, the load is too heavy for it that it can't even get up onto his feet. Paul is saying that he was severely crushed under the weight. He goes on to say, we, we despaired even of life. And in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. He thought he was going to die. J.B. Phillips translates, he says, we were completely overwhelmed. The burden was more than we could bear. In fact, we told ourselves that was the end. What's this refer to? Well, scholars don't know really is the answer to that question. Some of them suggest that it was the fighting what he had involved with the wild beasts at Ephesus. Others suggest it was because of the riot in Ephesus recorded in Acts chapter 19. Some say it just as a, a, an allusion to the various trials and the attempts on, against his life. And still others refer to it as a deadly sickness or maybe his thorn in the flesh. But whatever it was, Paul was at the end of his tether. I wonder if you experienced that. I wonder are you at the end of your tether even this morning? Going through a, a, an experience that you feel you cannot cope with. Why does that happen? Why doesn't God change the circumstances? Why does he allow us such troubles and even to despair of life itself? Well, the answer is found in verse 9. That we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Whatever happened to Paul, he then experienced something akin to a resurrection. God stepped in and transformed his, his situation. And the lesson that Paul had to learn was, don't trust in number one. Don't be trusting in yourself. Is that not the lesson that we need to learn day by day? We think we can do things. We think we can get through a situation. But sometimes it's the last thing we do to turn to God in prayer. Do you know, we, we, we teach our children Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I wonder do we each need to learn that again today. To trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding. We need to pay attention to that. Finding ourselves in impossible circumstances then we need to remind ourselves of the, of the God who raises the dead. Remember Abraham Abraham in the Old Testament, he was told, if promised by God, 
you're going to have descendants as many as the sand of the sea or as many as the stars in the sky. Look up and see the count the numbers of stars. You're going to have more descendants. And he waited and waited and waited. He was an old man, an old boy, 99, before Isaac was born. And he looked at Isaac through you. My descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky. Then one day God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son Isaac, take him up to Mount Moriah, sacrifice him there. Abraham waited years and years and years and now God is saying, sacrifice the one through whom you're going to have the descendants as numbers, greater numbers than the stars. What did Abraham do? He went up and he believed that God was going to raise him back to life. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19. It says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking he did receive Isaac back from death. He was going to kill him because God commanded him to do that but he believed that God was going to raise him. Impossible circumstances but God was going to be in control. Paul is able to say very quickly just last couple of paragraphs here. Paul is able to say that God delivered him and he will continue to deliver us. He has set his hope on God and will continue to trust him and through your prayers. There's a mystery, isn't there, concerning prayer? How does God work in answer to prayer? He does work. He tells the church to pray. We're to pray for each other. We're to pray for circumstances. God works through prayer. How, we don't know. But the result is that, verse 11, many, literally many faces will praise God for his gracious favours granted. As I conclude this, two things I want to underline. Number one, we are weak and we need God's help. Whatever our circumstances as children of God, we're weak and we need God's help. But the second thing is God is sovereign and we can trust him in every circumstance. It says in verse 10, on him we have set our hope. Make that your verse to meditate upon this week. On him we have set our hope. Yesterday morning, uh, Jenny and I were sitting up in bed before we got up and um, she said, I want to play a song to you. And she played a song that I hadn't heard. It was entitled, Even If. And I listened to it. And I said to her, that's based on Daniel chapter 3 where Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were called to bow down to the image and in verse 16 it says that <coughs> the, the three boys they refused to, to, to bow down to the image and so they were brought in to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar to explain themselves they're going to be given another opportunity to, to bow down. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, verse 16, replied to the keynote, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't, do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if, and that's the song, even if he does not 
We want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. Some of the words of the song says, I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. We don't know what circumstances we will face in the future. But we can sing, even if circumstances are difficult and remain difficult, even if you don't move the circumstances and change them, my hope is in you alone. Amen. Let's just spend a few moments in prayer and if any would like to